Well, of course, Virginia and I are both delighted to be here to join you in your Congress on disciple-making. We uh, flew in today through the snow. We were coming down from Waterloo, Iowa, on a little airplane called, it was a Fokker Friendship. Some of you have ridden those. We went to our cruising altitude of 14,000 feet, and the pilot looked around and got on the loudspeaker and said, we better go down a little ways. There's ice beginning to form on the wings up here. We don't think we can stay up here. We'll go down a little ways. So we went down and down and down. And I think we followed the interstate into Kansas City <laughs> and uh, sort of found our way through there, and it worked out just fine. We landed. So then we quickly ran over to Braniff and got on the airplane. And uh, I always have very good success with Braniff Airlines, by the way. They've never been late a minute for me as, as much as I've traveled all over the place. They've never been, you know, one minute late. I don't know what that is and why that is, but I always, and boy, they were right on time, so we took off. And the pilot said, well, folks, it's a pretty good day today in Wichita. He said, of course, the wind is blowing pretty strong, and it's snowing pretty heavy, and it's freezing down there, but all in all, that's not a bad day down in Wichita. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder what that tells us about the weather in Wichita, you know. So, nevertheless... We did get in, and we landed over here, and there was a fellow to meet us and picked us up. Larry brought us out to the, to the hotel, went down to eat lunch. Some of you came, began to filter in there, you know, about that time, and one girl looked over and she says, you look awful familiar. I said, yeah, my wife's a movie star here. No, she said, that's not right. So then she recognized, you know, Leroy and Virginia Imes. Oh, yeah, we've been waiting on you. She said, and this girl said, I am so glad you made it. I said, well, I am. She said, but I'm really glad. I said, well, good. Um, she said, I was afraid we, we were going to have to listen to Gene War all day, you know. So. <laughs> when... Uh, when Max called, well, I, I really didn't think we could come. I had two or three other things I was doing over the Christmas holidays. But as he explained what we were doing, why, you know, here at the Congress on Disciple Making, why I, I thought that's for me. I want to be part of that. So I just want to thank you again for the privilege of coming in like this and joining you about halfway through. I, uh, I'm really grateful to be here. We left home on December the 26th, went to a, to a conference in Kansas City, then went to one up in Illinois. And now we're on our way back home with a stop over here until Sunday. And um, we're both just very uh, pleased to be here with you. By the way, this is our year of Thanksgiving in our, in our house. You know, sometimes you have Thanksgiving Day. Well, we had Thanksgiving Day at our house, but we have declared this uh, officially, the year of Thanksgiving for the Imes family. About a month ago, Virginia and I were sitting around the house and it was on. Uh, it was in the evening. Got a call from the hospital. Said we got your son down here. You have a son named Randy. Yes, we have him down here at the hospital. He's been in a car wreck. How bad's he hurt? Well, we can't tell you that over the phone, but he better come on down. So we we got on down there. And a few days later, why a little notice appeared in the Mudville Splash out there that we put out, you know, about once a week. It says, uh, three youths were hurt in an auto accident. Three youths were injured Sunday night when their car left US-24 near Green Mountain Falls and plummeted 323 feet down an embankment, rolling over twice, according to the state patrol. Then it tells who the driver was and so on. And then it says, a second passenger in the car, Randy Imes, 17 of 
2627 Flint Ridge Drive was admitted to Penrose with a broken foot and shoulder injuries, but he's in satisfactory condition. 323 feet up near Green Mountain Falls on the way back from Vail where they were up skiing over the weekend. Uh, end over end in a Volkswagen convertible. If you can imagine such. I mean, not rolling, but end over end in a Volkswagen convertible. And um, the cop that um, talked to me about it afterwards, he said, there's no reason on earth why, why these kids should be alive. He said, they should be dead. In fact, we lost a high school kid there just last, the week before this. Uh, went off on a Jeep and a roll bar over the top and it just cut him in two and down he went and it was a terrible mess. And the cop was looking around up there and there were ski boots and ski poles, you know, and parkas and boots and the whole smear. And then over, you know, thrown with everything else was an old Bible lying there. And the cop saw all this junk, all these skis and all these boots and all this clothing and everything. And then he saw this book. And he looked at that book and he said, now that explains why they're not all dead. That explains it, he said. He didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. He didn't know what it meant to know God in a personal way, but he knew that somehow these guys were hooked up with an old book that reminded him of God, and he said, that's the reason, right there. Well, I believe that. I believe that God spared their lives. And um, when Gene and I were traveling together over in uh, Europe one time, well, we made it a practice to read the 91st Psalm every time we got on an airplane. And my wife and I still make that a practice. In fact, wherever I go, I read the 91st Psalm when I get on an airplane. We did that today. I was thankful we were on that one leg of that trip. But, you know, it says, He gives His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And I remember on that trip, Gene Warr read a little, uh, one of the newer translations says, And He gives His angels orders regarding you to protect you wherever you go. He gives His angels orders regarding you. And... Um, I can just see these angels, you know, flying along, you know, watching the car, and all of a sudden one of them says, good grief, look at there, you know, and going on grabbing those kids and throwing them around and getting them out of there. And I mean, I already believe that. I am personally convinced that God Almighty watches over us and protects us and keeps us. And he had those angels down there watching those kids. Well, I was assigned a topic tonight on, the first topic is on um, campus witnessing, and the second topic is on... Um, uh, my first little session on disciple making. So if we don't get th through this first one on the first one, you'll ju we'll just spill over a little on the second one and no one, you know, will know the difference. But I only have two things to tell you about witnessing tonight. And that's all you need to know. There's only two principles that I've been able to figure out. Let me tell you something. If someone comes along and tells you, now there's 75 basic principles on this subject, tell them, you haven't thought this through, pal. You know, if, when you get down to basic principles, you don't have very many. And tonight I've got two. On the subject of witnessing, personal evangelism, here's the first one. God does it. Not man, but God. It is God that does this work. It is not a human work, it is God's work. It is a divine work. Witnessing for Jesus Christ is a divine work of the Holy Spirit of God. He does it. In Acts verse one, or chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began 
both to do and teach, intimating that Jesus would continue to do and to teach, which, of course, he will and is and was at that time. In Acts 2.47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. It was God who added to the church, not man, but God. And in Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, you can take down the whole passage, but it talks about that lame man. And they're trying to figure out how he got healed. And verse 16, Peter says, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter said, we didn't have a, a thing to do with it. It was Jesus himself who worked in the life of that man. Then in Acts 4, verses 9 and 10, the whole passage, but in verse 10 says that, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And over and over again, throughout the word of God, you find these apostles, you find the prophets saying, it is God who is at work in this world. It is almighty God. Now, to me, the blessing that was to my life when I finally figured it out, that I would not have to do that. That it wasn't up to me. It was God who did it. And to me, that took all the effort out of it. All the strain, all the struggle. Just relax and let the Lord do it. And he will. And the second thing is he uses people. God does it and he uses people. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we'll read just the first few verses. This is the story of the conversion of a bird colonel in the Roman army, a man named Cornelius. No doubt he was a quite a man, this Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, we'll read the first six verses. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house and gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He was what we would call today sort of an honest seeker. Just kind of, He was seeking God. Verse 3 says, He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming to him and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he looked on him, he was afraid. Well, who wouldn't be? How would you like to go to your room tonight and have an angel sitting there? You know, hello, Joe. You know, good grief. <laughs> you wouldn't quite know how to react to that. Neither did Cornelius. When he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thy alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou ought to do. As I have read that and studied that, I thought to myself, why didn't the angel tell him what to do? Why didn't the angel show up and say, okay, Cornelius, here it is. You've been uh, giving money and you've been seeking, you've been doing all these good things, and we know you're seeking God, so I've come down from the very throne of God. And I'm happy to be down here and uh, give you the instruction that you're looking for. Here it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Repent of your sin, turn by faith to Jesus Christ. And you'll have a personal relationship with God. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. And he could have given him the gospel. 
but he couldn't. There was no way that that angel could give that message. If we, tonight, were to fill this great choir loft with angels, I'm sure they could sing for us and they could, you know, glory to God in the highest. And then we would say to them, explain to us how a person is born again and they would be mute. They could not utter a sound. They could not speak. Because God has left that to the likes of to you and to me. We're the only ones, the only beings in God's universe that can utter the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain to people how they can have a personal relationship with the Lord. No other created being can do that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. People can look out in this world and they can see the power of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stranger in the earth. There's no way that people can find redemption for their soul apart from the likes of us taking the time to sit down with them and explain it to them. That's it. We have been committed the gospel of reconciliation. That is our task. We'll go over that again. Look at verses 5 and 6. What a federal case. Now send men to Joppa. Call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee. I mean, it was a quite an you know event just to find this man. But he did find him. And by the way, just for your interest, just for your personal interest, some archaeologists from the British Museum some years ago decided, well, we know where that tanner's house ought to be because, you see, a tanner's house was kind of like the stockyards. You only put it in a certain place in the city because all those, you know, dead animals and all that skin and all that hides and everything. It didn't, you know, the wind blowing just the right way. The city was in, you know, trouble. So they put them at a certain place depending on the wind flow. And so these archaeologists knew that. And they said, if this is, if it's true there was a tanner's house there, it should be sitting right here. And they went out and they dug around and they found a huge tanner's vat as they dug right there in that one spot where a tanner's house ought to be. Interesting, you know, the way that God preserves these evidences concerning the truth of his word. The evidence concerning the veracity of God's word. And by the way, for you girls, if, uh, this business of a tanner, it was such a low occupation. And there were so many smells and so many other odd things connected with it, you know, that um, if a girl was, was, was engaged to a young man who was a tanner, and he didn't tell her he was a tanner, and she found out she had a right to break the engagement. I mean, it wasn't all that nice an occupation. And here was Peter, the big wheel in the Christian religion. Where was he staying? Oh, he was staying down here with old Simon the Tanner. Tells us something about Peter, doesn't it? Staying with Simon 
the tanner. So, of course, they went down and found him and Cornelius met the Lord. God does it. I see many of you taking notes tonight. Put on your notes a little dot up on the top. Make a little triangle like that. Just a triangle. And the top part of your triangle, put a cross. And then come on down and write Paul. Just straight down and write Paul at that point. And then where you come over this end over here, put the Gentiles. So it's Christ, Paul, and the Gentiles. We used to be told, we used to believe that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's not true, we understand. It's a curved line. Einstein has explained to us now that's a curved line. Well, you know, just us kids here tonight, let's still pretend it's a straight line, you know. We won't tell anybody we believe that. But Romans 15, 18 says this. The Apostle Paul says, I will not dare to speak any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient, both by word and by deed. Who was making the Gentiles obedient? Well, it was Christ. Jesus Christ was reaching down through the life of the Apostle Paul and reaching out to the Gentiles. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, was reaching these people, but he was using Paul. God does it. He uses people. You and I have the blessed privilege of being used of God to see other people brought into the kingdom. God does it. He uses people. Romans 15, 18. Then in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that you might bring forth fruit unto God. And here, the apostle uses the intimacy of a marriage relationship and says we're actually married to Jesus Christ in order that through that union we might bring forth fruit unto God. God does it. He uses our lives as the instruments to bring people to Christ. Now, the reason that I stress that is this. We get all hung up on the wrong things. We find ourselves getting our emphasis on, on, on the wrong things. We find ourselves saying, well, what method should I use? You know, should I use this method? Should I use that method? Forget it. It doesn't matter what method we use. Methods are, you know, a dime a dozen. There's all kinds of methods we can use if we can just remember that the first and foremost responsibility that we have is to stay in intimate fellowship with Jesus himself and let him use our lives because it is Christ who is reaching the Gentiles and continues to reach into the lives of people in this world. Let me just dwell on that for a second. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, it talks about Ezra who was going to go to Jerusalem from Babylon. And he's got it all figured out what he's going to do. Ezra 8, we'll go from 21 to 23. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our substance. 
For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Ezra said, okay, gang, here's our situation. We've got to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. And I mean that is a dangerous trip. There's bandits, thieves, murderers, all kinds of dangers. You name it, it exists on that road. And, you know, but do you think I would go to the king and ask of him horsemen and chariots and one thing or another? Not at all. I'm not going to do it. Just not going to do it. He says, we're going to go down, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, and uh, God will see us through. Now, Nehemiah, just a few years later, went and took the same trip, identically the same trip, the same road, the same dangers. And in Nehemiah 2, 7 through 9, it explains a little bit of Nehemiah's tactic in the matter. Nehemiah 2 says, verse 7 says, Moreover, I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me of the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come to Judah. Look at verse 10, that I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, and the king had said, Captains of the army and horsemen with me. Nehemiah said, Do you think I would take one step out of this place without letters of safe passage, without Horsemen, chariots, armament of every description. I want all the help I can get. A man would be nuts to leave this place and go down there with no horsemen, spearmen, chariots, soldiers, letters of safe passage. I want it all. Well, who was right? Well, they're both right. God led one man to do it one way, led another to do another. Methods, you know. doesn't matter. There are some things that really matter, but methods do not matter. As long as it's scriptural, of course, and honoring to Christ. Go back and look at Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. What had happened here was that Ezra discovered sin in the camp. And it tells how he dealt with sin in the camp. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished. I don't know what it means to sit down astonished, as a matter of fact, but whatever it was, he sat down astonished. And people would come along and say, Hark, he's astonished. You know, and they'd see him sitting there, and so they'd all stop sinning. And it worked. No biggie, just sit down astonished and wait there till everybody looks at you and say, Good grief, you can't leave a man sitting there astonished, you know, forever. So they all stopped sinning, and, that, and that's what happened. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. Then Nehemiah, Nehemiah discovered sin in the camp. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah finds sin in the camp. What does he do? Verse 21 says, And I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time forth, they came no more on the Sabbath. He says, you want a few loose teeth? Just, you know, continue to hang around here, pal. I'm going to punch you in the nose. <laughs> and they all stopped sinning, you know. You know, Oh, is that right? Right, okay. And everybody stopped. No biggie, just, you know, he threatened to, you know, loosen some teeth. Look at verse 25 
of chapter 13. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters and your sons nor their daughters to your sons or for yourselves. Old Ezra, he finds sin in the camp, he pulls out his hair. Nehemiah finds sin in the camp, pulls out their hair. <laughs> Who was right? Well, they're both right. You know, it doesn't really matter. God led one man to do it one way and he had, led another man to do it another way. But the point is, they were both led of God and that is the key to it. That is the secret to it. Staying in close, intimate fellowship with Almighty God. And then, asking God to lay a burden on our hearts. The kind of a burden that's on His heart. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Morning by morning, I'll, I'll, I'll let you on a little secret. Morning by morning, I pray a prayer. I pray, dear God, today I place myself under your Lordship and under your protection. I place myself day by day under the Lordship and protection of Jesus Christ. You know how it is when you wake up in the morning, right? You know, you crank that eye open, you know, on that bloodshot eye, and you're wondering what now, you know, and what, and there it is, the world facing you. Okay, at that moment, as soon as you get your, you know, your sensibilities about you, place yourself under the lordship and protection of Jesus. And then launch out in victory. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you didn't go around and terrify the devil all day. Just launch out trusting Jesus Christ. And the other thing that I do, by the way, is that I ask God to lead me to someone that I might share with, someone that I might speak to. Give a word of testimony or in some way represent Christ to them. But ask God to do it, you see. We've got to have a, a burden, a burden for the lost. The Apostle Paul, Acts 17, 6, says, When Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. You know, it'd be interesting, what do you see when you stroll around your campus? What do you see anyhow? What do you see when you come to a city like Wichita? What do you see when you go outside in the mornings? When the Apostle Paul got to Athens, he did not see all the great marble columns and all the splendor of this. He looked and he saw a city wholly given to idolatry. In John 4.35, it says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white all ready to harvest. The lost, dying world. The thing that Jamal was talking to us about tonight. The fact that people are lost. Somehow, morning by morning, we need to pray, Dear God, now today, lead me to someone that I can share Christ with. Lord, lead me. Lead me to someone. We must have that kind of a burden, that kind of a burden that burdened the heart of the Apostle Paul. This summer, my wife and I traveled in Russia. It was an interesting experience. 
And I was praying morning by morning. I was praying, dear God, somehow give me an opportunity to witness in this town. We were in, in Moscow. And I would wake up, you know, and I'd say, now, dear Lord, today I really, I, I, I'm, I, I want to share Christ with somebody. But you know, you go out in the streets and there they are and they all speak Russian and you're sort of stumped. And I wasn't quite sure what to do, but I was really praying. And so our first day, we got this guide, a girl named Olga. And she came and she took us around. And, oh, you know, now, some of you have probably taken guided tours. And it's almost like, you know, they poke a button and it starts to go. And, it, you know, you turn this corner and there's that building. You turn this corner and there's that statue. You turn this corner and there's that thing. And you, and you just can't break into it. It just kind of rolls around, you know. And out it comes. And I thought, how can I crack into that thing? Well, how can I break into that? And I couldn't. I was stumped. So I, next morning I prayed, now, dear God, today. And I really poured out my heart in prayer to the Lord. Of all things, we got the same guide. Now, you're not supposed to do that. The people at Interest were, they were stumped. They didn't know how it happened. No one knew how it happened. But here was this guide. Same one. So, um, hello, Olga. Hello, you know. And so we, you know, said hello and talked for a while. So today we're going to see the museums, all the old museums. Now, the old museums in Russia are the churches. Did you hear that? The churches are museums. That's their museums. And so we uh, went to see the museums. And we would go and in the front of the church would be what they call an icon. And that means that's the picture that depicts like the saint that church is named for. Maybe it's, maybe it's Elijah or John the Baptist or the person of Christ himself. Some person. And then on both sides are pictures, long drawings, pictures of events in the life of that person. And we watched all that. And then over on this one side, one of these churches, one of these places, these museums, was a huge gold object. And it had the full story of Jesus Christ on it, down in, 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 in uh, pounded brass. It showed his birth. It showed him as a young man in the temple with the elders. It showed him going about doing good. So it showed him healing the sick and all the way around. It showed him dying on a cross. It showed him risen from the dead. It showed him ascending into heaven. I said, Olga, look. Look at on this, the full story of Jesus. Come and look. So she came and she looked, you know. I said, now here's where he was born. You see, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And I explained to her where he was born. And then I went on to about how he was in the temple, you know. I astounded the elders with his wisdom. And I went right on around the whole story. The whole, I mean, I've witnessed to that girl in greater detail than I've witnessed to anybody for a long, I mean, I started where he was born and went the whole business. And here, Olga, is where he died on the cross for our sins. How he shed his blood for us, for you and for me. And then here it is, when he rose from the grave, alive forevermore. And here he's coming again. You know, his ascension into heaven. And then he's coming again. Well, we went to another place, another museum. And this was the just one picture of Jesus Christ being taken up into heaven. And you know the men standing around, the angels saying, you know, two angels, why stand you here gazing into heaven? The same Jesus. And you remember the story in Acts 1. And so I went over, and there, and there were twelve apostles, two shining men, and Jesus going up into heaven. I said, Olga, the next time you come here, you can take people over here and explain to them that there's, that, that there's a mistake in this picture. She said, a mistake? Yes, come and see. There's only eleven men by this time, you see, because one of them betrayed him. Judas in the garden sold him out by a kiss and de de betrayed him into the hands of the, uh, 
of, of his enemies. And then they took him and he died on the cross. And they went over the whole business again. <laughs> you know? Well, I guarantee you that that would not have happened had I not been on my knees in the morning asking the Lord, Dear God, some way in this impossible situation, some way open up a, a, a way to share Christ with these people. In some way, dear Lord, you know. Just let me encourage you now. When you get up in the morning, that, you know, that first eyelid, two things. Submit yourself to the lordship and protection of Jesus. And then secondly, morning by morning, say, Dear God, today, as I launch out on my campus, in my neighborhood, wherever I am, Dear God, today, help me to share Christ with somebody. Help me. Look on the fields. They are white, all ready to harvest. Let me share one other thing with you, and then we'll quit. It has to do with having a continuing ministry. On your campus, in your neighborhood, wherever you are, how do you have a continuing ministry? See, I hear this all the time. I go to, I go to some area, talk to some director. He'll say to me, Leroy, two years ago we had a, really had a ministry here, but now today there's not much happening. You know, kind of everybody graduated. Or the gang that's followed up, you know, the gang that followed this bunch here, they're not really turned on for Jesus anymore. And boy, we had it here, but now it's sort of cold here. Let me tell you what I think is the secret to that and how you can overcome that problem. In Acts 8.1, talks about Saul consenting unto, unto the death of Stephen. At that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4 says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad and everywhere preaching the word. Verse 5 tells about Philip going down to Samaria, preaching Christ unto them. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And I asked myself, why did they continue? Here are the ordinary disciples, just the likes of us, just ordinary folk. They're all scattered out over that whole region. All the apostles stayed home. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts 8.1, except the apostles. The apostles, you recall, had been granted political asylum by Gamaliel. And so they could stay. They were safe. But not these Christians. They had to run for their lives. And they did. And when you find them out there, you find them witnessing all over the place. In Acts 11, you find them out preaching Christ. And there's a great number believing and turn, turning unto the Lord. There's nobody checking on them. There's nobody following them around. There's nobody snooping in to see how they're doing. They're just doing it. They're continuing. Strong. And we ask, how do you get people like that? How do you develop people like that? What's the secret? Well, you've got to go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And this is Peter preaching. It says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Acts 2, 23 and 24. He preaches the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, 
says, But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life who God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. He's preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here are the apostles standing up boldly preaching Christ wherever they can find an audience and guess who's watching them? The 3,000 converts, that's who. They're standing around watching this. And day by day by day, the apostles are sharing Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, to this man stand here before you whole. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. He's preaching the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. One theme, the leadership preaching Christ the ordinary people standing around watching it all. They picked up the notion that this was normal. That's sort of what you're supposed to do. That's kind of the way it is in the Christian religion. You just share Christ. Well, of course, this upset the Jewish elders and leaders. They couldn't take this anymore. So they, they said, okay, here it is, gang. We're going to change rules in the middle of the game. Everybody come to a huddle. So they got all the apostles in a huddle. They said, okay, here are the new rules. No more mention of Jesus again. Never once, ever. That, that name is done. Now, we're just never going to talk about Jesus to anybody at any time, right? And it sort of reinforced the point they beat him. And by the way, whenever you see the word they beat them, that's 39 stripes save one. 39 stripes across their naked backs. And they took him and they beat him. They said, okay, never again do we ever hear the word Jesus mentioned in Jerusalem, okay? And let him go. Tell us about it in Acts 5, 40. Through 42. Talks about Gamaliel saying, you know, don't... And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, just like that, sort of an offhand comment. The Holy Spirit just happens to remember to put in the, you know, oh yeah, and they beat them. No biggie, just when they called in the apostles and beaten them. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing they were counted worthy Word that is suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not. See, the way that you get a continuing ministry on your campus is for you to set the pace for those whom you lead to Christ. And let them watch you doing it day by day by day. And the young ones coming up, they think this is normal. They think this is how it is. They think, oh, so that's what Christianity is all about. Talking to people about Jesus. I see. And they pick up the idea and on they go. And that lasts till the Lord comes. That lasts till the Lord comes. But it takes an example. See, the power of an example. The phenomenal power of an example. Should you set objectives? Should you say, well, let's see, I'm going to witness to so many people a week. Should you do that? Well, 
I don't know. Let me just say this about that. You should set objectives if they reflect the passion and zeal of the New Testament. If they reflect the passion and zeal of the New Testament, then I say set your objectives. But make sure that somehow they reflect what you see in the Bible. That zeal, that passion for the lost, that concern that emerges from the pages of that book. Then set your objectives. In Acts 5.28, it says you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. These people were known as people that had filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. In Acts 17.6, they're called these that have turned the world upside down. Have come here also. Acts 17, verse 6. I was talking to a young student one time who had set his, his objective to witness to one person a week. That was his objective. I'm going to witness to one person a week. Well, you know, that's better than nobody a week. That's better than nothing. But as I went away from him, I thought to myself, you know, my sick grandmother, immobilized in a hospital bed, could do better than that. I mean, in a hospital, in a bed, right? Couldn't move. My sick grandmother could get more than one a week. You know, a nurse going by, oops, you know, and could stop a nurse if nothing else. <laughs> My wife goes to Bible study every week. And on the way to Bible study, she picks up Mabel Horn. Old Mabel. I mean to tell you, she is something else. She lives just down the street from us. And so Virginia and Becky, they pick up Mabel on the way to Bible study. My daughter. They pick up Mabel. And... Um, Mabel, she's only about, you know, 97 years old, and she comes crippling out to the car, you know, and she gets in, and, oh, she's so happy to be a Christian. Oh, thank the Lord. And, oh, that to this week, what a time we had, you know. She just loves to see people come by the house. She can talk to them. She gives them these little tracts and talks to them about Jesus, you know. She loves those Girl Scouts. In come the Girl Scouts with the, come in, girls, you know. Oh, wow, you know. Come in, come in. You know, all of you come right on in, you know. Man, she lays it on the Girl Scouts. And then the paper boy, come right on in, you know, and she gives the paper boy. Everybody that goes by that place, an old Mabel Horn, she's out there giving the gospel. Last summer, you know, it's, it's hot. So Mabel's in there, you know, looking across, and there's this old guy that lives across the street. Now, he's about 107, you know. He comes out, you know, he's rocking away, you know, he's out there sort of in his rocking chair, rock, you know. And Mabel's looking out the window, she says, oh, there he is. Mm, you know, she, she starts to truck across the street, and guess what? The old boy goes in. Oh, no, you know, I blew it. I, di I didn't get him. Oh, nuts, you know. Then he comes out again. So Mabel staggers across the street, you know, and she stops by him and she gives him the gospel and you know, explains the way of salvation. And she was so excited, she told us, because he was really interested. He's been looking for something like this. Well, you know, good grief, 107, for crying out loud. <laughs> But old Mabel, you know, she's out there, you know, crippling around, you know, and every week she's got war stories to tell my daughter in Virginia, you know, about how she witnessed this one, you know. And the meter man came in. Oh, come right on, you know. Oh, wow. Okay, you know, set objectives. You want an objective for one a week? Set one a week. You know, that'd be just fine. But remember, your sick grandmother could get more than that, you know, in a hospital bed. And so could Mabel Horn. Mabel Horn's going to get more than that. Why? Because somewhere down inside of her, the thing just bubbles out. 
She cannot contain it. I mean, she's got to tell people about the Lord. Do you remember when Jesus went into the temple? And here were all these rascals around there making all that money, you know, selling all this stuff, and they were doing this and doing that, you know, and birds and animals and all like this. Remember what he did? He acted like he owned the place is what he did, you know. He went in there and I mean he threw everybody out. Out. And the apostles watched it. And then they said to themselves, you know, that reminds us of the Old Testament scripture. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. When they watched Jesus Christ, they thought to themselves, this reminds me of a verse in the Bible that talks about being consumed with zeal for God. And when I studied that, I got on my knees and I said, Leroy, when was the last time anyone ever looked at you and your life reminded them of a verse in the Bible that talks about being consumed with zeal for God. We ask ourselves, what sort of zeal will the young ones have coming up, you know, next year and the following year and the following year? How will they continue? I'll tell you how they'll continue. They'll continue with the same passion and zeal that they see in us. Because, see, God uses people. God uses people to set the example as he uses the Apostle Paul and and all the apostles in the book of Acts to set the example for the young. And out they went and they were firebrands for Christ. The tremendous power of example. See, and I know that when a gang like yourself give up your Christmas holiday and so on, you no doubt are some of the leadership on those campuses that you represent. You're the directors and you're the ones that people count on. I know that. And I also know Therefore, that it must be us, those of us in a room like this, that are day by day setting the kind of example that people can see so that when we're gone and they take over, the work remains strong. God does it. He uses people. Now, I... Um, I've watched young men and women. I watched them start out. And they're going to go and they're going to make disciples among all nations. And they're going to do that. And they're going to go out and they're going to make these disciples. You remember the first command in Scripture ever given to the human being was be fruitful and multiply. And I believe that can be applied spiritually as well as physically. And God commands us to go out and be fruitful and multiply. He wants to see us pe seeing people come to Christ being fruitful and then multiplying, seeing that continue. That's obvious all throughout the scriptures. Be fruitful and multiply. So I've watched young men and women set out to do that. By the grace of God, I'm going to go and I'm going to be fruitful and I'm going to multiply. And they go out and they start struggling and straining and working and sweating and laboring and getting under the burden and striving and all the rest, right? Nonsense. Utter nonsense. Because if they'll just look in their Bibles... They'll see in both places where Jesus or where, the, where, where God in the book of Genesis says, be fruitful and multiply, just in 
in the, in the phrase before it, it says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. As a result of my blessing on your life, now then you go out and be fruitful and multiply. Disciple making. Disciple making starts as you and I learn to live under the blessing of God day by day. Learn the secrets of living under God's blessing moment by moment, day by day, all the days of our life. How does one live his life under the blessing of God? And in just a few minutes, we're going to continue that theme. And we'll continue that for the next few times now. How to live our lives under God's blessing in light of being a disciple maker for Christ. Let's pause and have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we're indeed grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that in the matter of personal witnessing, that it's God who does it, and the fact that you've consented to use people. Thank you for that. Thank you, dear Lord, for the privilege we can have to be together here at this place. In both Virginia and I, I want to thank you right now just for the joy of joining this group in this Congress on Disciple Making. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.